0: So one of the profound aspects of the Enneagram in terms of its value for both personal growth and also societal and global transformation is the endless, uh, seemingly infinite varieties of and dimensions of inquiry that open up and how really, because we're talking about approaches, orientations towards things, um, windows, in a sense, from our temperament and our soul, and how those interplay with all of the different aspects of life, everything from the way that we care for our bodies to the way that we care for our souls. Um, It's just powerful to apply the Enneagram to many different pathways and disciplines of inquiry and thought. And so we're delighted here today to be opening up a conversation between two very key figures in the Enneagram movement, Russ Hudson and Mario Socora. And this uh, exploration today is going to be about rational and spiritual approaches to the Enneagram, similarities, differentiations, and equivalencies. I think probably most people who are listening Uh, know who Russ and and Mario are, so I won't go into an extensive introduction, but just to say that Mario is an executive coach and consultant who advises leaders in large organizations across the globe, working with senior leaders in numerous multinational corporations, including Motorola, PE Connectivity, Dow Chemicals, Panasonic, and Johnson & Johnson. He's definitely recognized as an international speaker and author, and he is the co-author of Awareness to Action, the Enneagram Emotional Intelligence and Change. And I know that many of you heard the interview that I did with him on the Enneagram Global Summit in 2014. I look forward to deepening that um, interview with him at the Enneagram Global Summit in 2015. Um, Russ Hudson is a uh, much beloved uh, figure in the Enneagram community. He's the co-founder um, and one of the principal scholars and innovative thinkers in the Enneagram world today. He's uh, the president of the Enneagram Institute, and he was also the co-founder. And he is an author, or co-author of The Wisdom of the Enneagram as well as personality types, understanding the Enneagram, discovering your personality type, and the power of the Enneagram. So I am very excited to have both of you here today um, because what, I've, what I know is um, something that both of you are completely committed to is proof. And as we move into this topic today... I want to say to our listeners that truth, I think, is one of the most needed explorations in the evolution of the human species today, and particularly in the consciousness movement. Because for me, what has happened with the idea of truth is often been that either um, truth becomes sort of this rational thing or the, the way people approach it, they see it as this rational thing and somehow because of the splits in our, the splits in our in our psyches, we somehow see the rational as a different than or somehow apart from or contaminated even by the emotional and the spiritual and other aspects of life. Or we somehow co-opt the idea of truth in a very limited kind of, I would say, emotionally reactive way where we start to say from kind of a pop psychology point of view, well, I want to tell you my truth. And we can hear right there in the charge of that that, uh, that probably isn't a, a truth, it's just a, a feeling. And what I've been really impressed by with both of you over the years is that um, in the... In cl- clearly, the presence of both of you as substantial human beings who lead rich emotional lives and have, um, you know, various, uh, sort of elements of spiritual inquiry and personal inquiry, uh, you both have a sense that the truth, truth is important, veracity is important, um, things as they are, reality itself is incredibly important and intelligent and uh, actually, to, to, to borrow a phrase from the Bible, set us free. The truth shall set us free. To really live our lives in a way that is real and, um, and rich. So I'm really delighted to be inviting you guys to have this conversation about the intersection or the meeting points between what people usually think of as spirituality and rationality um, to have this conversation about the similarities and the differences and the ways that they complement each other. So I would love to start by asking you, Mario, if you would say a little bit about um, truth and veracity and your own sort of sense of of your path around that and, and what we might call the rational approach to the Enneagram.
1: Sure. Well, th- thank you, Jessica, and, and thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. I'm uh, um, thrilled to, to be here with uh, you and Russ today, and I uh, always enjoy talking to my good friend and mentor, Russ, and uh, so th- th- I really welcome this opportunity. Um, the um, the topic is an important one to me. Uh, one of the things that I always liked about Don and Russ's title of, or what they call the the type eight, which is what I happen to be, is that they refer to it as the challenger, right? Uh, and I think it's such a great name. Um, there's just something in my psyche that has always need to, needed to challenge ideas, right? So that's, that's always been a part of me. Um, But I also have a very firm belief, and part of this just comes from, I think, my natural temperament, but also from the work that I do in organizations, that our ideas have consequences, right? Uh, What we believe matters, and uh, uh, ideas are not abstract things. They shape the decisions we make. Uh, They shape the choices we make about how we're going to live our lives, And if we're not careful with our ideas, if we're not careful about what we assume to be true and what we assume to be not true, then we make mistakes that not only cause us to suffer, um, but that can cause other people to suffer. And I think that anyone who is a teacher in any way or anyone who, uh, like me, would presume to give advice to people, Um, like I do with my clients, has a real responsibility to ensure that they're giving them guidance or insights that are as grounded in rigorous uh, thinking, uh, in good critical thinking, as possible. I mean, for me, it's not just an intellectual issue. It's, it's It's an ethical and moral issue. Um, I also would think uh, I think it applies to anyone who would see themselves as a good citizen of the world. right? Uh, we have to think, we have to exercise good critical thinking or we can't make the decisions about how society should be.
0: Mm, thank you. So Russ, I'm wondering if you could also, um, just as a way of opening, share with all of us your own sense of you know, truth and veracity and realness and, and what your approach has been to that.
2: Yeah, um, well, I'm absolutely 100% in alignment with what Margaret was just saying, um, that it is an ethical issue, and it's very difficult in the current climate of uh, our culture where there's been what I've come to call the enshrinement of opinion, that, you know, (laughs) My, my father used to have a kind of a rude and funny expression opinions are like uh, a certain part of our anatomy. Everybody's got one and they all stink. Uh, but it's, it's merely the idea that it, the center of, for me, of what the Enneagram teaches us is a kind of engagement with reality that's based in presence. And for sure, uh, our the quality of our embodiment, our groundedness. To be grounded is, is is not merely. Well, um, I'll just say there's a kinesthetic component to that. Being grounded, uh, established, uh, to be heartfully engaged, very important. And indeed, most of the big transformations that happen to us happen at a heart level. But it just seems to me a given that. When we are more present and more developed, that we're more curious, that we're more open-minded. But open-minded doesn't mean gullible. It doesn't mean believing any ridiculous thing that comes along. But it definitely means being a lot looser and a lot less attached to what we have hitherto believed or thought. That there's a curiosity and openness, a willingness to find out what is true. Um, Years ago, uh, Don and I were involved with uh, a study that was conducted in the UK to actually determine or try to get some empirical testing of the validity of the Enneagram itself, not of any particular test we were doing, but of is there such a thing as the Enneagram? can we, using other kind of measurement tools, find out are there indeed nine types of characters, or are we all just validating a test about a a hypothesis about human nature that doesn't seem to have any uh, real support, empirical support? And uh, we worked with very hardcore um, academic psychologists of global renown. Anyone in the world of psychometrics would know about these gentlemen and they tested the enneagram itself i won't go into the details of how but i will say the part that was relevant was to work with these guys don and i had to be willing to find out that maybe the whole thing was fluey we had a strong sense that we shared with those scientists that there was something to this and as we explained it to them they got that sense too there was a a a felt sense this seems right this seems right we had to be willing to find out that maybe some of our assumptions, and maybe even big assumptions, were not right. But it seems to me all human development, individual or collective, is based on that willingness to find out that things are not quite the way I had them figured out. Certainly all science is based on that, all development of philosophy, all spiritual revelation is almost always finding out things are different than we thought. So the only other thing I'd say about that is that also doesn't mean that you get to throw out reason, and it doesn't mean that you get to throw out that there are some things that we do understand. These things may be modified, they may be changed, we may learn other things about them, but that's very different than dismissing um, evidence or empirical information that has been arrived at. That information may prove to sit in a different context than what we may have originally thought but it it doesn't mean you get to deny certain uh, ways that reality operates just because you don't like them. So I think the last thing I'd say is truth, for me, is not a function of whether I like that truth or not. I don't have to like something for it to be true, and I don't have to dislike something for it to be not true. And I find that when when I'm willing to have the courage to kind of go into something new, to find out that it's different than how I thought. Even though it might be a little bit scary at first, the end result is always some kind of relief. Like we kind of know when we're standing in something that actually is more true. Something in us recognizes that. Um, but I think I'll leave it there for now. But it's, it's My whole orientation toward the Enneagram has always been about finding out what's true and, you know, like any human being, I get caught up in my own little favorite ideas from time to time. But if I'm honest with myself, I am willing to look at those at some point and say, hmm, maybe
1: there's more to this. Mm. I, I so think, you know, much, if. I'm sorry, go ahead, Jessica.
0: No, go ahead, Mario.
1: I, I was just going to say um, that one of the things that all the wisdom traditions teach us. Is that we're easily fooled, we're easily deluded, right? Uh, that we're easily trapped by illusion. Um, I recently heard a definition of cognitive dissonance, which was the uh, the thing that other people do to protect their own beliefs, right? And much like on the spiritual path, you know, we always – we acknowledge that, yes, we're easily deluded. Well, I should say you're easily deluded, but I see the truth, right? And um, mm-hmm. so it, it's very easy to fool ourselves. And uh, the spirit of uh, a willingness to be wrong that Russ is talking about, the, the willingness to learn something new by understanding that something else that we used to believe was false – is the sign for me of real intellectual integrity and real spiritual courage, right? There was a great essay that the uh, Dalai Lama wrote in the New York Times about five years ago now called Our Faith in Science, right? And uh, he said that people ask him all the time, um, what would you do if you found something in science that contradicted Buddhism? And he said, well, then I would have to change Buddhism. Uh, he said, you know, Buddhism has really good things, and science has really great things. Uh, but if they overlap, you kind of have to give the, you know, the the weight to the things that are more factual rather than um, beliefs and assumptions about something that can be measured scientifically. Right? Um, mm-hmm. Most of us take the opposite approach, right? We reject information that doesn't fit our beliefs and um, these are the things that keep us trapped right so so I really think that this is not just a um, you know a business issue or a you know life skills sort of issue but it is a spiritual issue
0: mm-hmm. so you're both um, pointing to something that's really at the heart of why this particular conversation is so interesting to so many people and I'd just like to bring it out a little bit more explicitly as a way of having a really huge matrix for, you know, a conversation that I think is going to go into um, things like, you know, the maturation of the head center, integrity, ethics, the three centers and how the Enneagram, you know, is instructive about that, um, a systemic coherence and all of that. And and the, the matrix I want to make sure is really explicit for our listeners is there's such a... What I call intrapsychic split between uh, the sense of spirituality and fact, or between being practical and being, you know, spiritual. Um, so much so that, as I know both of you know, people will will come down on either side of the fence, and they'll either sort of reject science and reject logic, and you know, reject rationality because it's getting in the way of quote my heart, or you know, what my soul wants to do, or they'll come down on the other side of like I don't, they won't even allow themselves to really do uh, have the spiritual courage, Mario, that you were talking about to really go into an inquiry of what there is that might be larger than my own body and brain and, and neurologic. Because again, there's such a split in that psyche in, in between those two things in our in the human species, and I feel like one of the very powerful things that could happen in this conversation. Is for you guys to weave some, um, some both facts and and you know poetry and tales around, around you know, are logic and spirituality inherently different? Are they actually different emanations from the same thing? Are they actually the same thing? So I just love it if you could both paint a little portrait on that territory and you know certainly I think Mario you really wanted to um, come out about the rationality piece. And, Russ, you have always been a seeker of truth, and yet many people see you as their spiritual teacher. So I'm going to ask, Mario, if you would start by talking about rationality and then how that is or is not spiritual, just in in light of all the things I just said. And then, Russ, if you could talk about the spiritual sort of... um, journey, and then how the rational plays into that, and then from there, I think we can uh, go into some of these other really fascinating topics. So, Mario?
1: Sure. So, you know, there is in, the, in our society this big split between, you know, science and religion or science and spirituality, and uh, that just strikes me as a false battle, right, Um it's, it's a diversion. And, you know, one of the challenges we have is that a word like spiritual has so many different meanings to so many different people, right? And we kind of have to define what it is that we're talking about when we talk about spirituality. Um, in my perspective, uh, spirituality is not necessarily an epistemic tool, right? It's not a way of knowing something, but it's how we live based on what we know, and there are many different ways to know things, right? We, um, you know, there are many different epistemic tools and they all have different uses, okay? So there's science on the one hand, which certainly doesn't answer every question, right? I mean, there are people who are devotees of science who think that science can give us our morality or our meaning and I completely disagree with that. I don't think that science gives us those things. There are other people who are dismissive of science because it doesn't capture larger truths, right? Uh, Again, I think that's a mistake. I think that what we have to be aware of is what question are we asking or what knowing problem are we trying to solve and then what tool can we use for that, right? So if I am asking myself a subjective question about meaning, about purpose, about likes and dislikes, then science is not the tool for that rationality is not the tool for that i don't rely on rationality to dis, you know to think about why i love john coltrane or why i love my children right why i prefer chocolate ice cream over vanilla these are not questions for rationality or for science these are subjective issues and subjective tools are perfectly appropriate for that right um, I'm not interested in a scientific conversation about why I prefer you know, John Coltrane to you know, Justin Bieber, for example. Um, so I think the big issue for us is to understand what tool it is we're using for what job and then incorporate that into our spirituality, whatever spirituality means for us or whatever our spiritual path is. Right? My frustration when these lines get blurred, is that very often people will try to use the wrong epistemic tool for the wrong task. And some people will use science to try to explain what is the right moral decision to make. And, you know, one disastrous example of that was social Darwinism from the 20s and 30s, right, or, um, you know, some of the policies of the Soviet Union in the 50s. Um, Science doesn't answer those sort of things. At the same time, spirituality or belief or religion doesn't necessarily answer questions about fact and about um, the structures of you know, the objective world. So the key thing for me is not to think of rationality versus spirituality, but rationality as a way of knowing specific things. Um, other tools for ways of knowing other things and then how do they all fit together in whatever our spiritual path is?
0: Mm. Okay, that's that's a really um, clear explanation. So, Russ, I'm asking the same question to you. And then, again, you know, so many people look to you as their spiritual teacher. So maybe going from the perspective of your own journey on the spiritual path, and then, you know, is rationality or truth, um, or fact somehow an obstacle, or is it actually a, a help?
2: Uh, I, I personally have found it very helpful, but, um, I, I think I, just being a, one example wouldn't be very compelling. Um, I think all of the great spiritual geniuses of history, were in some sense using rational thinking, certainly they were inquiring into what they understood reality to be. And as Mario was just saying, they were using specific epistemological tools. Now what does that mean? Epistemology is the branch of philosophy. that concerns itself with meaning, meaning of things, the meaning of human life, uh, what you know the, those kind of hardest, to answer questions, how we arrive at meaning. And as Mario was just saying, he and I have chatted about this on numerous occasions, different categories of experience use different epistemological tools. And even within science, uh, what works very well to study microorganisms or what works well to study chemistry doesn't necessarily explain cosmology. Uh, There are different mathematical and epistemological tools within the discipline of science. And as Mario was also just saying, scientific method, which is to create a hypothesis and then test it and see if it's repeatable, has produced a lot of pretty cool stuff in this world. We tend to focus on the problems that it's created, too, but I would always invite people to think of anything that human beings have created or discovered that can't be misused um, that uh, it's it's worth seeing that if you're in any real and deep and profound spiritual tradition, it has developed some kind of epistemological method. If you are a Tibetan Buddhist, for example, to use that example, of the Dalai Lama again, there's a long and rigorous kind of training and, way that they evaluate the development of people along with the areas of human experience that they're looking at. I see a lot of times people who consider themselves spiritual, inevitably we find certain ideas, certain practices, certain orientations to the world from that search that make us feel better or help us get free of something, and that's a beautiful thing but then sometimes we will attach to those and give them a kind of uh, a, a reality status that is not necessarily what that experience was. And the technical term for that in philosophy or psychology is we reify. We reify ideas. We, Because we had a certain experience, we interpret it a certain way, and then that becomes a truth. Many of my friends in the spiritual side of things will critique science Because they will, uh, when we find, for example, that there are um, some of the elements of classical Darwinism have proved to be different than what we originally thought, that that means we can just throw out the whole idea and everything about it and that there's nothing more to be said. Well, it's one thing to look for the discrepancies in, in a given meaning system, and it's quite another thing to do so to as evidence to reify a system that we haven't questioned ourselves. Some conviction that we already have that's correct. It's one thing for someone to say, well, I really do want to understand how life developed on this planet. And there are some discrepancies here, but I can't throw out the whole thing. It's another thing to use those discrepancies to dismiss the inquiry and say, I already know the answer. I don't see how any of us could be really spiritually developing as soon as we think we know the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the Head Center's role in spiritual uh, development is there's two parts to it. One is is to remain clear and open-minded. And my students know I like to make jokes about this. I say there's a big difference between, I don't know, which is a kind of willful... (laughs) I, that means I don't want to know, um, and I don't know, which is a curiosity, it's an invitation to discover something new. Really all spiritual realization is a kind of knowing, is a kind of discovery. Uh, that's one side of it, and, and that's the side we tend to like, and is that sense of um, open-mindedness. But the other side that doesn't get talked about as much... and Actually, in a call when we were talking with uh, Joel in uh, around Point 3, our male exemplar, we got into the discussion of how you also need to develop capacities and here mental capacities. We need to train our minds. We need to be able to think clearly. We need to be able to understand the different ways of being rational or irrational. We need to understand when we think we're being mental, but we're actually being quite emotional. We need to be able to think through things. And while it's a kind of radical thing to say, I would say I've met many people on the spiritual journey who have really developed their hearts. I've met many people who are really kind, loving people, service-oriented people. The number of people I've met... They've truly developed their minds, not in the sense of concretizing some set of theories or ideas about reality, be they scientific, spiritual, or whatever, but the people who routinely think through things is a much, much smaller category. And I would suggest that a complete spiritual development must include that development of our mental faculties. A lot of the injustices that occur in this world could not happen if there were a lot more people who knew how to think through things. And I think as we look at um, our own personal development and the psychological and spiritual challenges, but also as we look at more sociological and even global problems that our caring and our heart and our willingness are important and huge, no doubt about it, but we're also going to have to learn new stuff. We're also going to have to figure things out. We're going to have to make conscious decisions, and we can't do that if we don't know how to work with with uh, finding the most true and real and useful information we can.
1: Hmm. So I think, please,
0: uh, uh, go ahead, Daria.
1: Uh, I was just going to say, I, I think what Russ was saying there is just so important and so true. We... we we all have a tendency to sort of bias toward one, you know, domain, uh, the head, the heart, the belly, whatever we want to call it, that feels most comfortable with us. And, you know, real spirituality is um, is to develop all of those things and to balance those things, but to use them for what they are meant to be used for. And I agree with Russ that um, not many people take the time to learn the thinking tools that are so important right i mean we live in a time where you can find any information you want in your pocket i mean you can reach i can reach into my pocket and i can pull out my iphone and i can google anything Right? i want to know who the 14th president was it'll take me a minute right um and yet we are overwhelmed by misinformation um, the World Economic Forum just identified digital misinformation as one of the greatest threats to uh, the sustainability of the world for the future. Right? Um, and so few of us, however, identify the tools or learn the tools to protect ourselves from misinformation, to learn the um, uh, the tools for discrimination, right? You know, the the spiritual path is a great story that, uh, you know, the Sufis, where, uh, you know, when we come into the world, we're draped with 70,000 veils, and 35,000 veils are veils of ignorance, and we need to learn uh, in order to overcome that ignorance. But the other 35,000 veils are veils of illusion, and we need to learn the tools to cut through illusion, right? Well, you know, deceptive ideas or wrong ideas are those illusions and developing the tools to do that is half of the spiritual path right we have to you know uh, carl sagan called it a baloney detection kit right where we have to mm-hmm. understand what is not true if we want to under if we want to get closer to what is true right so mm-hmm. developing those thinking tools and those thinking skills that russ is was just talking about are critically important
0: well, let's let's really zero in on that for a few minutes here. So because I mean, this is, we're talking about really a sea change, a paradigm shift in the way the consciousness movement, at least in America has evolved. you know all three of us have talked about just in this call different ways that we see that split or people falling on one side or the other. Um, and both of you now are really talking about the critical importance of developing uh, the head center and all of the attributes of an awakened head center, discrimination, recognition, um, discernment, um, the guidance even, although we haven't used that word yet. Um, so here's, you know, let's go back to, so the teaching actually from one lineage, uh, the way they say it um, is, you know, the truth shall actually set you free. And then I know that sometimes when, sometimes when, even Russ and I have been teaching together. Um, we've we've been really struck how when we're working in the head center with people, with some of the uh, shadow work or just the you know the the internal psychohistory work, people are almost more in pain about having felt shame around their sense of intelligence or you know, having been sort of shamed for being, or even the word stupid, has gotten so to the core of them that in a way it appears to us that they've actually found in some ways rejected the head center or it's just too painful to go there. So these are some things that I've noticed, but what I would just love for both of you to um, speak about for a few minutes are what are some of the obstacles that you see Uh, with your students currently, to developing the head center, but also to integrating that with their heart and body and the sense of the spiritual, you know, what are some of the illusions that we have about, about life or our capacity to see clearly, and more particularly, what are some of the obstacles that, we could maybe look at today that might actually help people, might inspire people to more readily develop this part of themselves in their spiritual search?
2: Well, one thing I can say is, um, with utter and complete respect to the educators of the world, the teachers and educators who are amongst the hardest-working people in the world and really often underpaid, uh, under-supported, under-appreciated. I think the first barrier is the clunky educational system that we've all inherited, which does not teach people how to think. It teaches us how to memorize stuff, which, you know, there are things you do need to memorize in life, but that in itself is not the same as learning how to use our minds. Just like um, I could just have you endlessly do push-ups <laughs> or something like that, and it doesn't mean you know how to use your body. Um There's a way in which, um, well, our educational system was forged largely as an aspect of the Industrial Revolution, and it inculcates in people the qualities needed to make good factory workers, but doesn't teach them how to inquire more deeply into reality. I think Some things that I just always got interested in that helped me in this respect was just to engage with that natural God-given curiosity that we all have, that we all had as kids, that as you just said, Jess, many people get shamed out of it. We're either on one side being told, uh, hey, don't be too smart, or who the heck do you think you are, or you better shut up and don't bring that up, because we arise in a culture that's already wounded this way, And so we'll get shamed for being intelligent. Or we get shamed for not being intelligent enough, that we're stupid, that that's not for us. And people will give us backhanded compliments like, well, you know, at least you're pretty. Or at least you have a nice singing voice, which is just a veiled way of saying, poor thing, you're kind of stupid. I think the first step is for people to recognize that we have resistance around these kind of issues precisely because we have been wounded, we have felt shamed, we, have we haven't had this part of us developed. And so, in a sense, to develop your mind is the same sort of thing. When any of us sits down on a meditation cushion for the first time and tries to practice, it's rather horrifying, <laughs> you know? We realize we've got a long way to go, and sometimes we'll just want to give up. It seems too hard. doesn't seem worth it. We don't get the benefit. Right? This is exactly the same sort of category. Again, first of all, we're going to have a lot of defenses and narcissistic issues around our minds as they're already constellated. And sadly, this isn't just... I, I find this at all levels of education. <laughs> I find people with PhDs who still face the same challenges, right? To begin to learn how to use our minds in a new way to listen, to explore, to discover things, to discriminate, to discern is, is an exercise that will, like any kind of spiritual practice, something that is going to become part of our life the rest of our life. It isn't exactly to get somewhere, but the more we do it, the more skillfully we can live our lives, the more skillfully we can articulate whatever spiritual liberation or realizations have occurred in us. I think that, um, he, that one of uh, the people who was very influential on my thinking, vis-a-vis thinking and spirituality, was the, the great Zen master Dogen in Japan, and um, one of his dictums was that, as, as you probably know this one well, Jessica, it's practice is realization, realization is practice. And we will tend to think of that just as, of course, the practice of presence, the practice of mindfulness. But I would argue that authentic mindfulness comes with authentic mind. (laughs) In other words, it isn't a cessation of thinking. Dogen was very clear about that. It's accessing a kind of substrate of thinking that makes thinking work correctly. This is grossly misunderstood. By many people, Dogen said there is thinking, there's not thinking, and there's without thinking. And he said the the deeper levels of awareness are without thinking, but they're not the cessation of thinking. Thinking has its. I would also say that as we develop presence and learn to use our minds correctly, the nature of what thinking is also transforms. It isn't. Thinking goes from being that conversation that we're having in our heads to a kind of living, contactful curiosity and engagement with the meaningful questions of our existence. We, uh, you know, we, we find that way our greatest service to people, to the world, in the questions that are worth asking. And another simple way I would say is if we start we stop wanting to eat and live on mental junk food. One of the biggest problems with discernment is like Mario was just saying, there's so much information now, there's so many things you can as as he was just saying, you op- open your phone or look on your computer, and there's just an endless amount of information out there. But what of it is going to be useful to you? What is going to be real? What is merely feeding you the delusions that you already have? What is just stirring up the fears you already have? And what will actually, as the Buddhists would say, lead to edification? This is a lifelong thing, and we're not going to figure it out all at once. We're not going to get it worked out by some simple algorithm. So much of what we do is to spare us the trouble of having to think through things for ourselves. Yeah. So many of our opinions are a form of laziness. They spare us the difficulty of, of actually seeing what's there to do deeper, deeper truth. But I can assure you that all of the great sages of the ages did not do that. They did something else. And that's why their words and their teachings still resonate for us. Mm-hmm. I think I'll leave it Don't there not- for now.
1: I, I, I think there's some great points. Yeah, point. yeah uh, um, all, all great points. And, and I think one of the critical ones is that um, thinking is hard work, right? I mean, sitting on the yeah. cushion is hard work. Getting in touch with our deepest feelings is hard work. All of these things mm-hmm. are difficult. And so, um, you know, that's, that's the first barrier, right? I mean, it's hard. Right? Um, and thinking is no different. The, the challenge we have is that we all think that we all think well, right? We all think that we have common sense. We all think that we're logical. Um, But that doesn't mean that we actually have the tools to be good thinkers. Uh, And the reason is is because we have not evolved to think accurately, right? We have not evolved to accurately see the world. We have evolved to replicate right we have evolved mm. to um to survive long enough to replicate and there are um you know dysfunctions of the way that the mind works that actually increase the chances of us doing those evolutionary imperatives, right? And this is the root of all these cognitive biases we have. If you read the work of Daniel Kahneman or Robert Trivers or others uh, along that line, is the, the brain, the mind, has these hiccups built into it. Right. Um, it you know, for example, it causes us to see patterns in random noise that don't actually represent anything. But we are predisposed to see patterns. We are predisposed to make assumptions. Um, most vividly, we are predisposed to feel certain. Okay. We all want to feel certain about things. It's one of the great problems we have because we don't like to sit with the anxiety that doing the work on the cushion brings up, for example. We don't like to sit with the anxiety of not knowing things. Uh, We all want certainty. So we have evolved to find certainty quickly. And one of the challenges of being a seeker after truth is that it's very easy to think that you found it and to Mm -hmm. stop the inquiry and to become very comfortable and, you know, one of the beauties of the Enneagram is looking at that pattern on, in the inner triangle that represents how we go to sleep to ourselves, right? Point nine represents the autopilot or the, uh, the laziness, uh, psycho-spiritual sloth. Point six represents the fear. Point three represents the, the deception of telling ourselves we know who we are. We know what the truth is, right? Um, and so it's easy to fall into these traps, so we're kind of wired not to think well. And this is why the scientific method is so important, right? It's an external objective tool that helps us get past these things. It's why the Enneagram is so important, because it slaps us in the face and says, hey, wait a minute, you're not who you think you are. Right? It stands outside of us. Uh, the Enneagram doesn't care what we think about it. Okay? It just says, this is what is. And that's what science does, and that's what logic does. They they, they, they rip away uh, our opinion okay, and say, here's what's true. Like it or not, but it's true. Okay. Uh, and it takes a lot of courage to embrace that, and we uh, are, are not necessarily inclined to do so very often. Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, as we are talking...
1: Uh, are, are not necessarily inclined to do so very often.
0: So, you know, as we are talking about all of this, I'm feeling like it might be uh, safe to say that, and I'll just try saying this out loud and see if this resonates with you guys, that that it isn't isn't—it isn't that rationality or the rational approach to things and spirituality, let's say the rational approach to the Enneagram, the spiritual approach to the Enneagram, or rationality and spirituality are not actually two different things. They're actually um, parts of a whole, of a wholeism or a whole intelligence, much like a body, for instance. We have this body... And there are certain things we need to use our hands for and other things that we need to use our legs for. Um, and yet, when we use our hands to do whatever that thing is, it's going to have an impact on our legs. And when we use our legs, you know, for whatever that thing is, it's going to have an impact on our body. And so, I mean, on our uh, our hands. And so would you say that that's true, that inherently it's not so much that there's a difference between, um, that they're not... Separate the rational and the uh, spiritual approach, but they are different capacities and muscles of innate business or intelligence or real self, to go back to that nine uh, thing, and that that they actually enhance one another. we gotten that far?
1: Rush, you want to comment that? on that? Well, I I would say that I I think that's absolutely true, Jessica. Um, I I don't see them as separate issues. I don't see them as um, in any way in conflict with each other any more than our hands are in conflict with our feet, right? Um, It's part of the whole.
0: Ross, are you you, concerned that we might have lost contact
2: with Ross? Can you hear me? Yes, now we can. Yes, it it did drop out for a minute, and it seems to be back.
0: Okay, great. Well, we'll welcome back. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Um. So, so I was wondering if we might then, because I think two things that would be really important for serious um, students of the enneagram and serious students of personal development and and consciousness development um, with the rest of this call might be both to continue to heal in a sense or the apparent rifts between the two um, and actually see uh, or experience, actually have an experience as, as we're listening to how these two things are dancing together. And the other would be to inspire people um, to really um, feel courageous and and even excited about developing the head center. So I was wondering if it might be possible, for instance, to take three of the types. For instance, we could take the three, six, and nine, since they're the center point of each of those centers. And maybe to have each of you say something about, well, what is sort of the the most, in in a sense, rational peace or rational pathway, I'm sort of reaching here for words, that the three might need to come to terms with, and what is the, what is sort of the, the spiritual um, journey, and I think we're going to find out that they are very much interrelated, but I wondered if we might do something like that, like go, because you like to talk about that, Mario, sort of the rational approach. Um <clears throat>
2: Are are talking about the, so what the, the, you, the nine, the three, and the six, particularly.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I just picked those out because um, they they're the center point of each of the centers. So, Mario, do you think you could maybe? Um,
1: sure. Um, yes. It, it, and then it, we it, can it, go to a, Russ. Sure. So it's a very interesting question. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, as with the Enneagram, you know, I, I always try to remind people that the Enneagram is both a map of the individual and a map of a collection of individuals, right? It's it's these nine different types, but then it also represents dynamics that uh, affect every individual. Um, and I think it's the same way with these thinking issues, these critical thinking issues in particular, that there are certain fundamentals that just apply to everyone. Um, And then there are things that particular Enneagram types might have to be uh, particularly cautious about, right? Um, Now, you talked about the nine, six, and the three, but I know for myself as an eight, the thing that I have to be careful of is too much certainty too quickly, right? Uh, It's so easy for me to just assume that what I think is the actual truth rather than an opinion. And so for me, the, you know, I think the ultimate question that everybody should ask themselves, but particularly me, is how do you know that to be true? Right? Um, and then just keep asking yourself that question. Right? Um, but with the nine, I think you know, one of the key things, if we just take it from a, a strict Enneagram sense, the nine represents this psycho-spiritual sloth uh, so it's the, the willingness to do the hard work of thinking well that is so important for the nine. It's something that they have to overcome to not settle for the easy answers, right? Uh, again, much you know, like the, the, one and the, non, the one and the eight also do. So it is sort of a center-related uh, uh, issue, uh, either being too lazy to um, do the work or too quick to assume that the work is done around how mm-hmm. we think. Uh, with the, uh, the, the six, the question is more, how do we know when the work is done, right? Uh, instead of continuing on, you know, it's, it's so easy for the six and you know, the five and the seven as well to, to have the answer, but to not trust it and to feel like they keep, need, need to keep asking the question in this quest for certainty. So, you know, it's kind of the opposite issue there. Uh, With the three, the question becomes, how do I know that I'm not just telling myself what I want to hear, uh, what will make me feel good about myself and about who I am? Uh, So how do I know I'm not just stopping with a convenient truth um, that flatters my identity? Um, Mm. So I think those are things that each of those types have to look at. But, again, each of us has to ask those same questions of ourselves.
0: Um. Mm. Yeah, I really like it. Maybe we can even get around to just having you share um, with each of the types that one little tidbit there. Um, Russ, I'm just wondering if you have something that you'd like to say about sort of the rational pathways that are needed for the 3, 6, and 9 and sort of the spiritual pathways. Um.
2: Yeah, I think that uh the 3, 6, and 9 just being good ambassadors for their center, in a sense. They tell us things that really are true for the whole uh, cluster of issues there. You know, the 9 is a good representative for the 8, 9, and 1, uh, instinctual orientation. A couple of things come to mind. One of them is that many of us give a lot of prejudice to what we call our gut instinct, our, our gut feeling. And... Uh, There's intelligence in that. It's very useful for many things, but not for all categories of of knowledge and information. Um, There are hunches and things that we get that do turn out to be correct, but I I like to joke when I'm teaching workshops that, you know, most of us are very proud of that. I felt this in my gut and I knew it was true and it was true. A lot of people tell those kind of stories. We don't tend to tell the story of the approximately 139 other times that we were completely feeling new, we were right, and we were completely wrong, uh, or at least right. hardly wrong. And so that sense of conviction does not equal knowing. a huge one for everyone. Conviction does not mean I know. And we have to be careful. There's a kind of... certainty or an excitement that rises when we do get something or know something, but it can also be the very thing that shuts down the process of inquiry, of curiosity, of finding out a bigger truth. And nine, that can also just come across, not overtly as conviction, but (laughs) I meet people in the spiritual communities all the time, and for instance, just trying to uh, share the enneagram with somebody, but oh, that's so sweet, my dear. But we follow the path of this, or we follow the path of that, or you know, we're we're following the path of the heart, and and so on. No, not even any curiosity. We I've already got the answer, and I'm doing fine, thank you. Um, so, okay, maybe so, but maybe there's other aspects that would illuminate what you're already looking at. <clears throat> As you know, I was at uh, many years ago. I was teaching. Uh, at the Esalen Institute, and there was a young woman there who said something like that to me. I was talking to her teacher about what the Enneagram was, and he grasped it very quickly. But she said such a thing, Oh, I, we just follow this path, and we don't need to know anything, and da da da, da and we only follow the heart. And I you know, he said, Well, what part of you just said that? Was that your heart saying, I don't need to know anything? <laughs> or was that your mind?
0: Yeah, and of course, it was very rattling.
2: It was her mind used against herself, and we don't recognize that. So that kind of being satisfied with some kind of status quo of what we know, our position, our 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 false certainty, very much comes from the eight nine one side. The three and the two, three and four. I like what Mar- uh, Mario was saying, but like uh, here, the issue is more about finding out things that will upset the apple cart of who I think I am or, you know, that might open up feelings that I don't feel I I quite want to deal with. Um, There's a sense of, um, it's not that I think twos, threes, and fours can be very curious people and very investigative, but there's a sense of veering away in all of us from any kind of knowledge or wisdom that will um, illuminate things about ourselves that don't fit how we want to see ourselves. That won't support our self concept. And indeed, as Mario was saying earlier, the challenge of the Enneagram is to look nakedly and to see these things about ourselves. Um, People mistype because they're not quite ready to see certain tendencies in themselves. I think ultimately, as many people will probably recognize, once you have found your your basic fixation, your basic uh, issue in terms of your Enneagram point. You will tend to see plenty of other issues from all the other eight represented, but they they reveal themselves with more clarity and accuracy, I think, when we see our fundamental dilemma, our our core confusion, shall we say. And then the five, six, and seven, um, looking at the six, It brings in this other very interesting thing about mind. Nobody gets anywhere by being a dilettante. No one gets anywhere by just learning a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You actually develop mind like you develop anything, like you develop your body, like you develop your meditation capacities through some kind of consistency and development of a skill set. And same thing, you develop a perspective, you develop certain angles on reality, and you you mine those, you learn about them, but you don't want to become too attached to them. So there is this beautiful process of learning how to really know your own bailiwick, to know something about it. Like if you're going to teach the Enneagram, there's really stuff to learn about it. And you don't make it the... You don't make it the final statement. You don't make it the only thing there is to say about spiritual development. From the platform of actually knowing something, you're able to open and engage in a much more interesting dialogues and and explorations of other disciplines, of other perspectives. But nobody gets there by never developing any perspective. So it's about this beautiful need in the mind to find certain foundations, but then you learn how to launch from those foundations. And that's the skill. That's something we learn how to do. It's something that develops in us.
0: Hmm. So I'm wondering if both of you might offer to our listeners something. Um, you know, if it hopefully this is a contribution, this talk, uh, not only to our students, but to the kind of evolution of, of the consciousness movement and the lexicon of understanding what it is that we actually need to integrate um, into the core of our pathways so that what we are developing is real and whole. And so if we have inspired um, people to be present Uh, to more of their capacity here, um, particularly in this case, the Head Center and its absolute service um, and intrinsic value to our awakening. I would want to ask both of you, do you have any particular practices um, or books or just you know, actions that you could um, suggest that people would do to help bring, a, a mature their head center, bring a deeper integration, actually develop the capacity. I loved it, Russ, when you said, as an, a good example for discernment, was when you said the difference between conviction. Uh, conviction does not actually mean knowing something. Those kinds of capacities to discern what could people do um, to integrate all the information that we're hearing here today books practices
2: anything that comes in, to in a nutshell
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes why you go ahead Mario
1: yeah. Do we have another hour? Um,
2: yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so if 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 I was to let's see, if I was to boil it down to sort of one idea, uh, which I can't do, so I won't. Uh, there's a couple of things that come to mind. Um, number one is that we have to not believe, not fall into the false belief that. Um, science and spirituality or rationality and spirituality are in any way at war with each other, right? Um, They are separate things. They enhance each other. And, um, again, it all depends on what we mean by spirituality there. The heart and the head are not at war, and they shouldn't be. And they assist each other, and they need each other in order to be effective. So we have to uh, get out of that mindset that one is good and the other is bad, whichever side of that battle we might find ourselves on. Right? Mm. Um, related to that is that we have to be sure that we're not conflating the two things, right? That we're not mm. trying to do head stuff with our heart or heart stuff with our head, right? Uh, that you know again, these are different epistemic tools and we need to use the right one at the right time. So those are some fundamental things. Uh, as far as kind of practical tools, um, I'm actually doing a, uh, an ongoing webinar series on rationality and the Enneagram that addresses a lot of these things and it's a free webinar and if people are interested in listening to the recordings of that they can send me an email at mario at and I'm happy to you know, give them the links to that they can listen to and get some tools there I've also you know done some writing on this topic and I'm in the midst of writing something about it now that I'd be happy to share with people who are interested to get into more specific things but the key thing is don't see it as a war and have the courage and the willingness to say, how do I know this to be true? And how can I know this to be true? And how comfortable can I be with just not knowing? Mm.
0: Thank, you. Thank you. Russ, anything come to your, your mind?
2: Yeah, well, certainly ditto to everything uh, Mario was just saying, that learning to hold ambiguity is a huge development in people I think when we can be with ambiguity or is to put it in you know in a grammatic terms to hold the contradictions you know, the idea of the law of three is to see there are scripture used to say at least two sides to every stick and to be able to hold both sides of the stick which doesn't mean um, taking another stance about holding sticks. (laughs) There'll be another one to that. Um, I think also, as we've been talking about in this whole long course um, that we've been doing, there's a way of beginning to discern and recognize certain familiar reactions. And one cool way the heart does help with the head is in seeing what the effect on the heart is when I am understanding something or not understanding something there is for example a sense of wonder and uh, it's kind of a delicious combination of delight and a little bit of fear when we reach the end of what we understand and we're we're stepping into unknown territory it's kind of like beginning a, a trip you know, we are We're going somewhere now. It's kind of a a mixture of feelings. For me, that's usually a good sign that there's some kind of enlivening quality to ideas that are real and useful and relevant to us. This is in big distinction to ideas that produce in me the emotional reaction of self-righteousness, of being right, of, damn it, Mm -hmm. I knew I was right and this is how it is. Mm -hmm. It's astonishing to me how much we... Uh, to use uh, an NLP term, uh, how much we sort for information that confirms what we already think. It's a way more interesting exercise Mm -hmm. sometimes to get outside the box and read things from thinkers who aren't pursuing the kind of stuff you're already thinking about. Now, that goes back to what I was saying about the head center types. Yeah, you have to kind of know the turf that you're working, but if you only do that something will remain undeveloped. And I think those of us who are interested in teaching the Enneagram or facilitating people with it, the the Enneagram itself is teaching us to be able to engage other perspectives even when they aren't ones that are as familiar or comfortable with us. I think that already is an enormous liberation for people. And I think we come to recognize, just as we recognize a certain sense of when we're really in contact with our heart, we, we start to discern the sense of when we're losing the freedom, spaciousness, and clarity mm-hmm. of our true mind. We start to feel when our thinking is getting heavy, repetitious, clunky, um, self-serving, and so forth. And just as we don't want to be living in various dramas and things that keep our heart suffering, we start to recognize we don't want to be indulging stale patterns of mental activity that disconnect us from the power of our true mind Um, Mm -hmm. and its power to liberate us and others.
0: Beautiful. Well... You know we're coming sort of towards the end of our our time to um, for discussion here, and I want to bring home a few points. And um, you know I just feel that what both of you are onto and your real interest and 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 passion really um, to illuminate the and fixations and obstacles here and to illuminate uh, more of the pathway of truth is a tremendous service, um, not only to the Enneagram and the students that are interested in that, but just as I keep saying, to the consciousness movement itself. And some things that you've both been saying here in the last few minutes are reminding me of Confucius. having a part of his one of his great poems that was about path and how he set his foot upon the path of awakening at 15 and it took him till he was 70 to be able to follow the dictates of his own heart because now they were in fact one and the same with uh, the dictates of god so it took him like six to 55 years and he says in that that he got to a point i think he was about 40 or 50 where he no longer suffered from seeming perplexity, and that's what you were speaking to us—that you know we get to a point where we can hold things that have seemed contradictory. Uh, we start to understand that everything is playing a part in this uh, development of love and of wisdom and of presence. And you guys are really bringing in a—you a, know—just almost. Feels to me like what has been an amputated, you know, part of the consciousness movement, or an amputated part of many spiritual paths, is if we took, you know, our own arm that's so valuable and we just amputated it. Um, Here you are, uh, bringing it back to us uh, with a lot of interest and a lot of intelligence. And I'm reminded of a of a beautiful man named Mayor Schneider who. Was an Israeli, an eight like yourself, Mario, who was born actually blind, legally blind, uh, had numerous surgeries, you know, so 22, I think, in the course of his lifetime, and he actually healed himself to the point where he now can see and has even a California driver's license. And what he said he noticed with his inner eye, of course, um, was that, uh, he was used. The older he got, the more he was using less and less muscles. He was developing patterns of, of muscular activity, and um, and that if he actually found the muscles that he wasn't using and exercised them and moved them in new pathways, um, and this brings me back to Russ's point that he keeps making about curiosity um, and learning new things, that that capacities came to his him and his brain that weren't there before. So now he teaches people to recover their sight and recover their wellness from times that they've been really ill. And his primary way of doing that is to, uh, instead of using what he thinks most people use, about 50 to 70 muscles by the time they're um, an adult, is to start to use more of the 790 muscles or whatever it is that we all have. So I feel like you guys are really um, bringing online a capacity that has been, to a large degree, either separated from a great deal of the spiritual movement or or spiritual field or even, as I said, amputated. And I think one of the critical things here goes into the, the questioning that Russ keeps bringing up. I think we have shamed people so much in our educational system from not asking questions. Um, that they're going to be graded, that they're going to get, you know, um, there's a right and a wrong that they're going to be graded on, and then somehow that's going to make them feel either foolish or smart, that we we really need to reinvigorate the whole Socratic method, so to speak, uh, as part of this um, bringing in the beauty and the, in, um, the inherent wisdom of rational and science and fact and all of that, and so, you know, just for our students of the Multidimensional Enneagram, I, I just want to encourage you to ask all your questions without shame and and to really um, honor that it's important to know things. As Russ and, and uh, Mario have brought to us, it's not only important and essential, but it's also joyful and illuminating and oh, it can bring so much more capacity and efficacy to our search for our real selves and the truth. And I'd like to share with our listeners that Mario and uh, Russ will be con- will be continuing this conversation in, I'm sure, many informal conversations, but also in a very public and formal way at the 2016 International Enneagram Conference. Um, they will be doing a, a day, a pre-conference on this, uh, topic, and so we can all uh, really look forward to that. So, Russ and Mario, I'm just wondering if, in coming to a close, if there's anything else that you'd like to add or say.
1: Mario? If I could just say, if I could just say very quickly, first of all, I, I've enjoyed this conversation so much as I always do my conversations with Russ and uh, with you, Jessica, um, and I think that last point you made about the richness that Questioning and knowing brings to our lives is so important. And I have four young sons, and the message that I'm giving them all the time is that the more you know about the world, the more you know about how things work, the more colors you have in your palette, Mm -hmm. and the world is just richer, and you see connections, and you see depth, and your world becomes multidimensional rather than flatland. Uh, I, I think that was a great point, and I just wanted to echo that from you.
0: Thank you, Maria. Max?
2: My personal experience that the boundaries of my heart have tend to be limited by the boundaries of my thinking, and as my mind is liberated, as And it's liberated by finding truth outside of what it hitherto thought. That liberates the the range and depth of my compassion, of my caring, of my love. Mm -hmm. Just as a simple example, I travel all over the world, and I know Mario does too. And when I go abroad and people find out that I know even a little bit about their culture, about their religion, about their customs, about what matters to them, about their history... It is such a heart-opening thing. It's. It's. It, sometimes people say, well, where do I start? I don't know if I want to learn about science or this or that. A good place to start, and the Enneagram will help us, is being curious about people. Just to discover that the rest of the world doesn't necessarily think the same as I do. And to see how many cultural assumptions we labor under. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the person over there is free of them either. They're, they're likely not. But in the engagement, in the curiosity, in the discovering each other's world, if let's say if I was interested in a more compassionate and peaceful planet, I don't see how that will ever be possible if we aren't curious at least about our fellow human beings. And if you're really looking at that, you're going to be curious about, what human beings really are, what's our place in this cosmos, what's, you know, the bigger pictures, the bigger mm. questions come. And they're w- some of the most fun and satisfying things in life. But I would say that, uh, let's go back to what I was saying, As uh, the more I've understood people in the world, the more it has, for me, opened my, my love and compassion for the world and for everything in it.
0: Wow, what a what a rich place to come to in this conversation and you were talking, Mario, about, you know, how rich life can become. Like in this moment when we're all really listening to one another and I think my sense is not feeling like we know everything. <laughs> Hopefully we've all come that far and, and what's come out is a great richness, especially in the last two things that both of you just said, and I'm thinking that for our students who are so interested in awakening and consciousness, you know, there does come a place um, on the path the teachers have, have told us about this where it actually becomes possible to smell sounds and taste thoughts and, you know, hear, um, hear sights. Um, You know, where there's so much uh, richness and so so many aspects of ourselves have been awakened that they are all sort of contributing and harmonizing and lending uh, more variations on a theme and more dimensions to everything that we're experiencing. And this wonderful conversation about truth and what it can do for the richness of life has been a great contribution. So I thank both of you for that. And I look forward to our continuing dialogues, um, both publicly and uh, with amongst ourselves around this topic. So thank you, Mario, and thank you, Russ.
1: Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Mario.